Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to this podcast, which is an abridged version of the television interview that I did with Seleni Henry as part of my Young Conversation series that was first broadcast on the W Channel. I hope you enjoy it. This podcast is brought to you by UK TV Play, the free on-demand service. Tonight, I'm in conversation with a man who first came to our television screens doing impressions on a talent show. He then went on to become a respected Shakespearean actor. He's a co-founder of one of the biggest charities we've got. He's also a knight of the realm. Tonight, I'm in conversation with Seleni Henry. Lenny, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. I'm sorry, I said Lenny. Sir Lenny. Ah. Thank you for coming on. It's only people of a certain age that have the sir thing. Young people still say, hey, you. Hey, you. Hey, you, and all that kind of stuff. But the older generation are very much, um, all right, Sir Lenny. <laughs> if I'd hear, I'd talk me for a lock. How, how did that get communicated to you? Does someone from the royal household come and knock on your door with a, a big cushion? With a note from the Queen, or how's it happen? No, no it's, it arrives in the post, John, and um, you, you kind of open it, and it says, you know, and, it, and it's the it's the royal seal. It's got royal saliva on it and everything. She's, <laughs> and, and, you, and you can tell it's pulsing with blue blood. It, you get it, and then you get it out, and there's this really nice, not printed at Euston Station card. And it invites you to become a knight of the realm, and um, and then you have to talk to everybody and say what do you think, and and then everybody goes, ah, you it! <laughs> that means we get free stuff for the rest of our lives. <laughs> no, 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 that means no, it doesn't mean. <laughs> that. Um, but uh, it's a fantastic, uh, fantastic thing. Actually, when you're at night, is there something that you say that means that now you can, I don't know, drive your sheep through? Buckingham no, that's Palace. when you become the free, the free man of the. So I'm, I'm a free man of Dudley. They gave, which means you can drive sheep down Dudley High Street. Really? I've never seen this. <laughs> I've never seen anybody do that. I don't think that would last very long as a tradition. I think you can uh, just walk into people's house and take food. <laughs> and uh, you can sleep with the mayor's wife. It's a brilliant thing. You can just, out of my way. But it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And um, after the knighthood, only my, my partner, my daughter, my, my sister were allowed to come to that. And... Um, we do this thing now called the siblings where all the brothers and sisters get together and we sit around a table and we eat and we talk about mom and we laugh and stuff. And um, my partner said, oh, there's a siblings thing in Dudley on Saturday. I went, oh, great. And we went up and I didn't know, quite, I hadn't organised it and nobody had said anything about it. And we're driving around Dudley and I'm thinking, well, this isn't the way to Bev's house. <laughs> where are we going? This isn't Hilton's house. Where are we going? And my partner's going, no, no, it's going to be fine, don't worry. And we pull up outside Dudley Town Hall. And I go, what are, we doing? what are we doing outside Dudley Town Hall? Is Jimmy Carr on? I, <laughs> I had no idea what we were doing. And um, we got out of the car and there's a man standing on the, on the um, front of Dudley Town Hall. Sir Lenny, come this way. The main hall is empty, but I can hear people go, shh, shh, stop the noise, stop the noise, he's coming, stop the noise. And um, my sister Bev says, come this way. And my sister Bev leads the way into this bar that's in Dudley Town Hall and it opens and there's 
a huge table full of Jamaican food, and there's all my family waiting. And there's a big banner on the wall that says, congratulations, Uncle Sir Lenny Henry. Oh, isn't that brilliant? So it was a massive meal to celebrate the knighthood. And it was fantastic, and it was proper Jamaican food, and everybody talking about how our mum would have been proud. And I think one of the main reasons I, I wanted to do it was because of my mum, you know. Because when I, when I did the Royal Variety the first time at the London Palladium, I walked out on stage and I realised they put my mum on the same tier as the Queen, and I thought, this is a big mistake. <laughs> and, I, and I started to shake when I was on stage because I thought, please, mum, don't say anything to me. Hello, how are you? <laughs> you know, but she behaved... But it was a brilliant thing, and she loved the sense of ceremony and pomp and all that kind of thing, and she would have, she would have loved this. She would, have, she would have worn a big hat, and she would have enjoyed the day. So, because she passed in 1998, I have these moments when I, yeah. when I do things that I thought I wouldn't do, and uh, it's great now. Oh, I mean, I mean, it's a great thing, but you talking there about your mum and, and the sense of pride that you think you know, yeah. she obviously would have had. Yeah. Is that something that's carried you through? Because you're the first member of your family to enter this environment at all. Yeah. I think um, my mum was a massive influence on me and uh, growing up in Dudley, she came first. She, she came over first. My dad stayed in Jamaica because he couldn't be asked clearly. And um, so mum came over on a boat six weeks um, and then she came to Britain and she, she got a job and she earned the money to send for my dad and my sister Kay and then the rest of them... And she earned the money to send for the rest of them. So mum was a powerhouse. She had three jobs. Three jobs. Is, is that, is that a, a normal Jamaican family? Because the mothers always seem so strong. Mum's a powerhouse. Well, the, my dad was a powerhouse too. He's a stonemason and a builder and a labourer and he worked very hard. He was a subsistence farmer and um, he, he grew other things as well and I think that's one of the reasons we had to leave the country. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but my mum went first. She came here and she worked really hard and she got everybody across. And I just grew up watching her doing stuff and realising how strong she had to be. And it was very, very tough for her. And um, my dad came with my sister Kay and suddenly it was... We were all a family and then the rest of them came and there was, you know, there's seven of us. So it was a big thing, house full of people, lots of noise. Everybody so, hiding in a wardrobe when the rent man came. But that's the thing, like, you look at your, your life now... And what I thought was great, to get a window into your life prior or when you were starting off, you, you, you wrote Danny and the Human Zoo, which yeah. was based loosely on you getting into new faces. The first two years of my career. So it was Danny and the Human Zoo was um, initially commissioned as a, as a kind of little television series about my early days in show business. And then um, the, the drama lady at the BBC said, well, I think this is a 90-minute film. And by the time I got to the end of this thing, I realised that I'd written a lot of my mum's story, which is unique. <clears throat> and when she first came to the UK, she came on her own and she met this guy and um, they had me. So my birth father is not the father that I thought for quite a long time. Mm. And then that was like a rug being pulled out from under my feet. So when I wrote Danny in the Human Zoo and Neil Gaiman says, just make up stuff, the bit I didn't make up, which the Daily Mail jumped on, was the thing about my birth father being different to my, the person that raised me. And when I sent the script to the, my siblings, because I said, oh, it's about, oh, it's, it's going to be all right. You, it, there's a few bits and pieces you might, but anything you want to change, just let me know. So there was a long pause while they read it. And then I started to get these phone calls. You sure you want to say all this? <laughs> you sure you want to put this in the film? Yeah. All right. My sister didn't like the swearing, so I had to do one where I took out all the swearing and sent it to him, pretend that there was no swearing in it. <laughs> Oh, good, you take out all this work as a church lady. Oh, good. God will bless you and find you and keep you in his arms. <laughs> you take out the swearing, that's good. 
Then she was vexed at the premiere. I, I mean, it's... <laughs> Um, but it, so, g- it gives a window to a world that, you know, you're, we're, we're, the moment's the matriarch and, and it's so strong and so powerful. She's a, yeah, she's a... Pa- my mum, played by the brilliant Cecilia Noble, yeah, um, my mum is a powerhouse in, in the story because that's... And everything is refracted through this lens of nostalgia and the way... You, some of the things are, are, are how you wish they'd gone and there's other things you go, well, you know, you're going to write your mates but you write them in a certain way. They're a bit like a Greek chorus. Yeah. But my, my mates were very funny. But I didn't realise the bit about my mum was going to cause such a stir, but it did. And it was a bit uncomfortable, you know, people doorstepping my family and, and all that. But in the end, it is what it is, you know. You said when you wrote it, there was things that you wrote as you would like it to have been. There's, there's a scene that we've got here now, a clip where, where Danny, who's playing you know, your character, Danny, has the conversation with his dad yeah, I wish that about happened. him not being his dad. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. you never had that conversation. Well, no, my, my dad was my dad. Let's, get, let's not get it Yeah, no, what I mean about not being your birth dad. Yeah, yeah, he wasn't my birth father, but he, he's very... When it came out, it was very heartfelt. The scene when she tells Danny about what happened yeah. and the scene that follows just came out... We never rewrote it. It just came out of my blood, sweat and tears, really. And I, I, at the end of it, I just went... I put my pen down and went, yeah, that's... That's what I wish had happened. What I love about this is, is you're playing your dad and you explain why you took the boy on. Yeah, yeah. And I think that is, for everyone who doesn't know why you're a father, it sums it all up. I'm so sorry, Dad. What you sorry for? Baby making his way after lie down, pan it. Calvin, all right, you know. Him did never want to take you on. Too much heartache and responsibility. So me take you on. <sighs> I feel like... I feel like someone's pulled my whole world out from under me. Yes, bad news do that to you sometimes. But listen to me, me is a serious somebody, you know. Life, marriage, children, all serious things. You have to commit. Myrtle not easy, you know. Calvin like your mother, but him could never do the hours. <laughs> Don't know why I'm laughing. <laughs> I've never been so depressed in all my life. <laughs> oh. But I think that's a beautiful thing, you know. Couldn't commit, you know. He liked your mum, but he couldn't do the hours. Couldn't do the hours, yeah. When my mum told me these the stories about how they met and everything like that, it became very clear to me that this was a passionate affair and it was lovely and it was there wasn't anything dodgy about it. It was just something that happened and there was some regret, but actually it's part of life. And I, I felt that and I understood it. And as an adult, having been through some of these things myself, I understand now that, you know, these things make you stronger. These things are about hardship and life experience and emotional upset. And when you go through those things, it makes you tougher. It means you have to be more sensitive and it makes you understand what other people have been through. So I think these things are part of the book of your life. And once you've studied that chapter, you don't have to live that again. You can't keep making the same mistakes again. You've got to turn the page and go, OK, having learnt that, now what? And that's what my life is like. For you, then, as, as, as the son of an fifth, immigrant... I was fifth. The fifth. So, so you're, you're the child of, of an immigrant. That journey that you went on, 
Must have been something completely inconceivable when you started. Yeah, being the son of immigrants is, is an extraordinary thing. It was a privilege and uh, it was an honour. And seeing my parents work as hard as they did to raise us as a family was inspirational to me. I used to wake up every morning at, you know, six o'clock in the morning because my dad would bang on the door and say, get up, and, um, and then and get ready for school. And I did have this thing in me that said, I'm going to do something with my life. I'm not gonna, I'm not just gonna be in Dudley. I'm, I want to do something. So I had the impetus and, you know, in a house where there's no central heating, yeah. I think you get that. I think if you grew up in a house where there's no central heating, you just want to get out and do something and achieve something and earn some money to get central heating. As you say, that drive inside you must have been enormous to take the steps that you took, because you entered show business as a teenager. I was 16. In a climate that probably wasn't accepting to many black comedians at all. Well, there, were, there, were, there, were, there was Josh White, Sammy Thomas, Kenny Lynch, I think, counted as a black comedian, and Charlie Williams, so there were four. And uh, the th three of them were featured on The Comedians. And they did the type of jokes like, you know, if I'll come and move in next door to you, that'll bring the rent down. They did that mm. kind of joke. And I used to watch the comedians and think, oh, well, obviously, I've got to do that kind of joke to get across to the... I had no opinion about it. I just thought, there's a successful black person on television. I better do what he does. And there was a fantastic moment with Eric Morecambe. I did a show with Eric Morecambe, Eric and Ernie. And after the, after the performance, he came up and said, well done, well done, lad. He said, you don't have to do that stuff, you know. And I went, what? He said, you don't have to do any of that. He, he, he had a word for it, and it wasn't a word that you'd associate with Eric Morecambe. He said, but you don't have to apologise for who you are on stage. You can just be funny because you're just funny anyway. He said, just yeah. concentrate on that. Concentrate on being funny. Don't worry about the black stuff because we can see you're black. You don't have to keep going on about it all the time. And I sort of went, I, it was in the Isle of Wight, strangely. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> But it was a kind of a real... It took me a while to figure out what it was took, because when you're a kid, you go, what was he talking about? How, how old would you have been? 18. Yeah. And I was still kind of struggling with my identity about who I was, because it takes a while. I don't know how long it took you. How long did it take you to figure out? Because you were a storyteller anyway, weren't you? You were doing... Yeah, but I was, I was old. You know, I did my first, my first open spot. I was nearly enough 35. Really? And I, did, I didn't leave my job till... 10 years ago, so I was 40 when I left my job. So you'd had, I mean, I'd had no, you'd had life experience. I'd had no life but experience. But that's what, that's what I find so fascinating. You had no life experience and then you went into an environment that didn't necessarily invite you in. You had no. to well, look, the I mean, door I, together. I had, um, I had racist abuse when I was on stage. I had, um, I had compares who didn't want to be on the same stage as me. And, you know, it, up north it was really tough because they just... <laughs> I would be the only black person within a 50-mile radius. <laughs> There'd be no other black people. I'd walk on stage and there'd just be, like, a sea of white faces. And don't get me wrong, one of the things I think that I had to do as a youngster... What's great is I was young, so I was very full of mm. vim and vigour and I had this thing of breaking down barriers. I remember um, John Peel came to see me in um, Norwich with John Gorman from The Scaffold, and he said, it was amazing. Before you came on, they were saying, when's the nignog coming on? You know, and uh, we don't get many coons around here. I wonder what he's going to be like. And afterwards, they, it was a standing ovation, and he said, you won them over. You, they didn't expect to be won over, and, they, and yet, yeah. suddenly, they were all on your side, cheering you on and willing you to do better. And there were, there were, in that first 10 years, it was horrible because you're learning how to do it in front of yeah, people. Yeah, that's, that's the difficulty. You went on New Faces at 16. You, you won a few eats on that. So, And we're talking when there was only three channels. We're talking when... 16 million people. 16 million people. See, so you've got, is... like, 
so the, the, the understanding is you have 12 or 15 minutes of material that you can do without shaming yourself on stage. So I knew I, knew I had Tommy Cooper, Elvis, Muhammad Ali, Max Bygroves, Frank Spencer, um, and some other stuff. And I had 15 minutes of material that I'd done all over the discos. And they used to let me stand up in discos and just, they just stopped the dancing. <laughs> Can you imagine that in the rave tent at Glastonbury now? <laughs> they just stop all the dancing and then I'd get up and go, thank you very much. <laughs> I'd do that for 10 minutes. And then, so that's how I... That's I've a, had some terrible... See, the that's thing how is, I try out the material. Well, I came, I came into this... When, when there was comedy clubs, you were, you were coming in working man's yeah, clubs yeah. in between the meat raffle, the stripper, and the, you yeah, know, yeah. the disc. So I had the, the, so the peas, and they'd shout, they'd shout that the pies had arrived. In the middle of your show, the pies have arrived! <laughs> <laughs> and people would just get up and go and get a pie. <laughs> Wait, is this on? <laughs> Hello? But it was really fun. It was a fun time the first 10 years, but it really was graft. It was hard graft. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of hard work, isn't it? It is hard work, but, but, I mean, the environment that I went into, I was a grown man for yeah. a start, and, and... You'd had, had a job. I'd had a job, and, yeah, you know, we've all got nightmares. You've lost your gigs. virginity. Yeah, yeah, well... <laughs> no, no, I've been married, so I found it again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there it is! <laughs> You're back, are you? <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> But you're walking into these working men's clubs where racism yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, was not regarded not as racism. Not all of them. Not no, all no, of them. what I mean is, and I, what we would regard as racism now was regarded was as normal parlance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was just commonplace. The, the material that people did before I went on stage. Bring them on. What, what I'm surprised at uh, is that it was an adult environment and I was a kid. So I was like, I would not let a kid of mine yeah, do yeah. that. But I was, my mum my and dad just said, well, he wants to do it, let him do it. So I did it. But on reflection, you're just thinking, God, I was 17, 18, 19. It was a very adult environment. And people, people were trying to kind of put you off, definitely make you nervous. So they go on and they do their worst joke about black people that they could think about. And it was always a joke about sexual prowess or some jungle thing. And I'd be waiting to go on stage and I'd just... And I'd start to kind of go, oh. and there'd be something in me going, oh, no, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to do Tommy Cooper. No, 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 I mean, about the racism. Well, you've just got to do your act. You can't bother about that. You can't... Re re so it was like I was having a conversation with myself before I go on stage. Um, the only time that didn't happen was when I did the first and only... I did, a, I did a cabaret at a black working men's club, a Jamaican working men's club. I'd never done any, any gigs where there'd been a, a, a totally black audience. And I didn't know what it was going to be like. And I was a bit nervous, because my family didn't think I was funny at all. So, <laughs> Let your mother talk, she's funnier than you. <laughs> so um, I thought, oh, God, I was really nervous, and I was, I've been on telly a lot, so I'd kind of done Wednesday at 8 and New Faces, and I'd done the Ronnie Court, so I'd done a bit of telly. And um, I walked on stage, and there were all these people standing, black people, and then they all sort of came really close to me. So, so, so I'm on stage here and, the, and the, <laughs> there's a guy like this with dreadlocks going, go on then, no? Make me laugh. <laughs> that was a good night. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by UKTV Play, the free on-demand service, where you can watch the TV shows you love from Dave, Yesterday, Really, and Drama, wherever you want, whenever you want the home of BAFTA-nominated series Taskmaster and the critically acclaimed Red Dwarf, alongside other UK TV Play exclusive including The White Princess and Most Haunted. UK TV Play offers free access to thousands of hours of comedy, drama, documentaries and paranormal TV, all for free. You're talking about these stories now, and I haven't been a parent of, of 16, 17, 18-year-olds. As you say, it's a tough environment. I would have been fearful for them, but I also think to do that, to go through it, and, you know, the death that you have on stage that everyone has, which is soul-destroying. No-one understands what it feels like to die on stage. Yeah, the comedians call it dying. If you have a terrible night, you say you died. And um, strangely, if you had a good night, you say you slaughtered them, which I always think is... <laughs> <laughs> it is a battle, isn't it's it? It's weird, is it? How'd you do? I slaughtered them tonight! Murdered him. But that bit again, taking the taking the, the circumstances and the environment as well. What made you think I'm just going to carry on? You you said that your mum told you to the do central it. heating. Yeah, put this. <laughs> I just thought I'd go back to the house with no central heating. <laughs> if someone was to say to you, "What's your job title?" My immediate assumption would be you'd say, "Oh, comedian first, then actor, then then other things." But your knighthood citation actually says it was for drama. And for charity uh, work, and your your drama is relatively recent. I mean, I did, I mean, what I was doing there was kind of learning lines and trying to be funny and doing lots of physical stuff. But um, the acting for me didn't really start until Othello. I did a radio show called What's So Great About yeah. Shakespeare. I did two, I did three of them, and on the on the first one we interviewed Barry Rutter, who was this great bloke from from Hull. His dad's a fish porter, and uh, but he runs this theatre company, and they do a lot of Shakespeare. And Barry likes Shakespeare in. In an act, he likes your natural voice. You know, to be or not to be, that's a question. You know, whether it is noble in the mind, you know, he, he likes it in your natural voice. And I said, we've got to get this bloke on the next programme. So he came down and he talked to us in the studio and he said, um, let's do a bit of a fellow. So I got the script and I learnt it the night before and um, I was a bit nervous when I went in the next day to do the rehearsal. And Barry starts to act it out because I thought it was just going to be me going in a, with my hands like this going, soft you, a word or two before you go. I have done the state some service and they note, no more of that. I thought it was going to be that. No. Barry goes, right, you come here, you stand here like that, I'm going to be over here like that, and all the men are going to be over here like this, and they're going to walk in, and you're on the bed, right, and everybody's dead, right, so they're all dead on the bed. You've killed two of them, they're dead, Yago's there, he's off down the road on his toes, so you're there, and suddenly you're like you're playing. Do you remember when he used to play? Yeah. And it was like, suddenly I was playing. So where am I, Barry? Am I here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you get the knife out there, and they don't know you've got the knife. So when the knife comes out, you go like that, and, they, and the audience are going to go, <gasps> like that. So you get the knife out, and, you, and you, uh, it was just 
the best morning I've ever had. I rehearsed 14 lines for four hours and I didn't get bored. Every single time we did it, you found something else to play with. You found something else to do, some other attitude, some other inflection that you could do with this line or that line. And it, by the end of the morning, I was shaking and I said to him, do you think I can do this? And he went, yeah, yeah, I do. And then it took about a year or something to do because I was a working comedian. But then from the minute we did it, I didn't look back. And, and unlike being a comedian, somebody else was in charge, Actually. you know? There was a script that arrived, they give it to you. And there's rehearsals. You get to rehearse. You get to explore the character's emotional and physical journey throughout the night. You get to commune with other actors and work with other people. You get to sit in the corner and learn your lines. Other people come up to you and say, do you want to learn that bit? Should we go through that bit? When you're a comic, you're in your dressing room on your own in your pants, <laughs> eating hobnobs and moaning about the traffic. <laughs> it's boring. I love it, but there's, there's an element of being a comedian which is lonely and it's sort of, and you get on stage and the audience is fantastic and they, and they love you, but that ain't real love. But it's like being a cowboy in the old days. You go somewhere and you move on, you move on. And, and what struck me about anybody, any, any comedian who, who's then gone on to do, do stage acting, they fell in love with the fact that you're, you're in one place and they fell in love with the thing that I would have thought most comedians would get bored of is doing the same show the following night in the oh, same It's not words. the same. It's not the same. And that's what I've, I was worried about. It's not. Um, I was doing a fellow one night at, at the Trafalgar Theatre and um, there were two young women wearing the niqab, the one where it looks like yeah. that, and they were sitting there and they were watching the show and I could tell they were involved in this show and it got to the final scene of a fellow and it's incredibly moving and there was the final speech where he says, soft you a word or two before I go and he goes on and on and then he pulls a knife out and the audience goes, <gasps> and then he does that and he dies and he falls on the floor and he's lying there and the lights are slowly going down and, I'm, and I can see these two women in the niqabs looking at me. And as the lights dimmed, one of them said quite loudly, shame, man. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't happen the night before. <laughs> yeah, but... So I'm dead on the floor, right? I'm dead on the floor, supposed to be dead. And as the lights are dimming, all you can see is this. <laughs> because the other one said, in it, no. <laughs> Really loud. <laughs> well, there's people eating crisps. People's phones go off. It's brilliant. And you as an actor, you can't stop and do 10 minutes. You can't, because you're yeah. in a play. You've got to maintain the integrity of the character. And there's a bit and you're going, oh, just, just do five minutes about the phone going off. But you really can't. Yeah. You know, you go, to me or not, all right, pal, do you want to put your phone away? You can't do that. In the middle of a kid, you get told off, you know. To me, there seems to be four distinct phases really in your career in your life that 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 early phase the the new phases the working man's clubs the fosters and then the second phase which we'll come on to into a minute the the alternative then the, the acting and then the music if you look at the second phase now which is where you went on to the alternative comedy scene you went on to the comic strip uh. you, you joined that world how difficult was it for you to enter that world coming from the working man's club it's really funny I'd, I'd had all the experience, but I but I'd, I had all the wrong material. Um, I was a very clubby comedian. The jokes, a lot of the jokes were about sex and race jokes and jokes like that. Um, but in the meantime, I was listening to Richard Pryor and I was listening to Red Fox and Steve Martin and Robin Williams. And I knew there was another style, another way to go. And then I saw Lexi. 
Lechisel didn't give a monkeys whether the audience liked him or not. And this was a massive game changer for me because I thought, oh, there's something going on here. This isn't what's going on in the clubs. This is something different. And it wasn't dependent on anybody being put down for their race, colour, creed or gender or sexuality. It was a completely different kind of comedy. And then I met Dawn and Jennifer and Rick and Aid and all those people. And they, they, they like Eric Morecambe in the Isle of Wight, said, you don't, you don't have to do that stuff anymore. You know, you, you can find another way of being funny. So it was a cosmic shift for me, that. And that pretty much drove my career for another 10 years. So having had the club land, he's a good lad, give him a chance. I, I did that for eight, nine years. And then suddenly this alternative comedy thing was like a catalyst. But, but the alternative scene, did they welcome you with open arms? They were, you were, they were really, really fantastic. Yeah. I mean, they really... And, you know, I mean, after a while, because I was going out with Dawn, it became this other world. So I was, I was welcomed. I wasn't, I wasn't in it, but I was of it. Yeah. Um, and it was a lot of hard work, but it was, it was very different. And I was in control of it. That's what it gave me. This whole thing of my characters, my sensibility, um, a sense of who I am, which is a, a black person who's brought up in Britain with Jamaican parents of African descent. Suddenly that was the DNA of the material. Yeah. So everything was put through that. And you, you mentioned Dawn. You, th that was comedy showbiz marriage. So, but, so it was, but it was a marriage, really. Yeah, yeah but, no, but you know what I mean? To the rest of the world. To the rest of the world, yeah. Yeah, was, you know, it was you're, a comedy you're, show, but yeah. to us it was like, you think, well, what get I, married. Yeah, what I was going to say is, did, did you have this thing, because I suppose Aidan and Jennifer had it as well, this thing where people think, oh, there's two comedians who are married, they must be dead funny all the time. <laughs> it must be great. It was, it was interesting being married to another comedy person. Yeah. And um, there was a scrabble for a joke sometimes. If something funny happened, there would be a a kind of battle of wits until that joke was done. Yeah, the, um, the, the reason I asked that is because you've come from, uh, from an environment where there was nobody in the business in your family or your wider friends, and, 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 and then all of a sudden you're immersed in a world in the alternative comedy scene yeah. where friends are in the business, your partner's in the business, and then all of a sudden you're right in the middle of it. And I, and I was just wondering whether from, a, I suppose, a creative point of view and, and a life point of view, whether that potentially sometimes becomes too stifling? Um, it's, it's, it was a very creative atmosphere, I think. Yeah. I think it was a catalyst for lots of things. One of which was Comic Relief. It came out of that period of time as well. Yes, it, it did. How did that come about? Richard Curtis came up to me and he said, we're doing this thing. It was called Charity Projects at first. And there was a talk about doing a TV show, and I'd said, this should be like a night of telly um, and raise money and stuff like that. And we had some more meetings, and then it transpired that we needed to write thousands of letters. And so I was very much part of that initial recruiting thing of getting everybody on side. And, and it just had this... It was like a game change. It was an immense thing. Red Nose Day was this thing. I remember a few years later, on the sixth one, where... I was taking my daughter to school one day and there was a whole tranche of kids wearing their clothes backwards. <laughs> <laughs> but I, th I love the way everybody's got behind it. I love the fact that it's an educational thing that teaches it. It's part of the curriculum now. People now understand why we donate money to Africa. They also understand about the issues in the UK. And I think it, 
That and children in need, actually, have transformed giving in this country. It's easier to present your cause now because people have got a kind of a, a visual a vocabulary, reference, point. yeah, yeah, reference yeah. points. With everybody, we, we asked them to bring an important picture to them. <laughs> and I think this picture that you've brought probably sums up a lot of what you've said. Talk us through that picture. OK. It's a bit wigtastic. That's the first thing I want to say. <laughs> My mum's on the right, looking like Ella Fitzgerald. <laughs> and Auntie Pearl is on the left. And uh, my mum used to wear wigs like hats. She had, the, she had the daytime wig, which she would wear at a jaunty angle. And then she had the posh wig, which we'd wear properly. And both she and Auntie Pearl would swap wigs on occasion. <laughs> Just for fun. Um, my sister Shan is on the left, and um, she's looking at Brian Moody, the photographer, like it's the first time she's ever had a photograph taken. And she's wearing her best Sunday school frock. Adrian's not supposed to be in the picture. Adrian's my Auntie Pearl's son, um, but he's just come back from school and he's going, oh, you have any picture taken? Can I be in it? And he's just walked into the shop. <laughs> Justin is my sister Kay's son, and he had just come back from nursery, and I wanted him to be in the picture because he'd just been crying because we'd combed his hair. So I wanted to have him have his picture taken because it was a reward. And Paul, my little brother, was just being cheeky, and um, he's the one on the right. And um, I'm in the middle, and I can't believe that a photographer from London has come all the way to Dudley to take my family's picture. And um, Shan, How old are you, then? I'm 16. I'm just past the audition for New Faces. And Brian Moody, this brilliant London photographer, came to Dudley to see where this kid from Dudley was and who he was and, and took pictures of me at school and down by the canal and near the tip and outside my house. And um, my mates, two days before, had broken our front gate. That's why we're standing in front of the front gate. <laughs> You know, and your mates waited outside for you to come out and play. They'd been kicking the door, kicking the gate like this for, to play, kicking it backwards and forwards, and it broke and fell off. And so we're all standing in front of the gate because Mum said we can't have people knowing we haven't got a gate. <laughs> and that's basically it. And I, want, I wanted to show people this because that's what it was like. Our house was full of people all the time, and we loved it. And we were very, very poor. I don't know, it sounds strange. There were mice. We were overrun with rodents. There was no central heating. We had the paraffin lamp. Um, one paraffin lamp in the middle of the front room where we all would, in the winter, fight to get to the thing. And then when we could have a coal fire, we'd break furniture to put on the coal fire. Where's the living room chair gone? <laughs> <laughs> so we'd have a fire. And um, like I say, everybody working hard to, to, see, to get the family going. But what, this, this is great because it's like a, an intact family unit. And um, there was a lot of laughter. I know we talk about poverty and being working class and how, how it's hard, but we were poor and we did used to hide from the rent man. Let's play hide and seek every rent day. <laughs> All of us in the cupboard. <laughs> we're not in, nobody's in. <laughs> shh, shh. Best game of hide and seek ever. But, um, but my mum was brilliant and my dad was funny too. I mean, he never said very much, but he was funny. Um, um, but it was just a great place to grow up. That's the nexus of everything I've ever written about as a comedian, everything I've ever done as a writer. That's the nexus there. That's what I... That's my North Star there. And you went from there to there. You went from there to being sat there with Sir Lenny Henry. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll all agree. That's a great conversation. Thank you very much.
This podcast was brought to you by UKTV Play, the free on-demand service. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.